Welcome to a series of conversations brought to you by Insurance Thought Leadership and ITL Innovators Edge, focused on innovation in the insurance industry and the transformation that's taking place as a result. We're pleased to be joined today by Chris Mandel, who, uh, as many of you know, is the, is the SVP for Strategic Solutions for Sedgwick. He's the director of the Sedgwick Institute, and we're super proud for him to be uh, one of the original advisory board members for ITL, a longtime friend, and, and I think probably broadly viewed as the leading voice, certainly in the United States, if not across the globe, on risk management and issues affecting risk managers. I'm curious, as kind of a starting point, if you look at the world of risk as it applies to you know, industry and risk managers in that equation broadly, what are the types of things that are, I guess, uh, impacting what they do on a daily basis, the kind of the function of risk management? Thinking about it by, on an industry basis? Well, I mean, just broadly. I mean, so traditionally, it occurs to me that the risk manager in many, many instances their function is simply to identify and buy cover. Uh, in some cases, it's to, it's to use non-insurance products to, to manage risk. Mm-hmm. But it occurs to me that, 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 that there's a way that history has been treating the risk management function and that there's a way that technology is potentially going to change the way the risk management function is performed. I'll tell you one thing, it's not very technologically underpinned and never has been. So let's start there. I mean, risk management information systems are the only tool that most of my colleagues in the past anyway, you know, were using and the majority of them weren't using them either in that they didn't have the money to pay for them. So they used Excel and SharePoint to create, you know, some version of a mechanism that could help them keep track of insurance policies and exposures and, you know, maybe not claims because claim system information normally comes from that third party doing that work for you. But, you know, for those that do the claim work in-house, which is usually, you know, some portion of the, the bigger uh, company's risk staff, uh, then they, they need claim technology, you know, if they got any volume at all. And they may not. I mean, they may just do specialized in-house claim work because the lawyers wanted it controlled more and, and the volume is actually pretty limited. You know. When I think about a risk manager, a traditional risk manager is kind of day to day. You know, it's very little of it is is involved with the insurance procurement function. Assuming, you know, that's you know the, their main responsibility, and I think for most of the traditional folks, it is. Um, you know, it still revolves around the three-legged stool, right? Because this function went from being just an insurance procurement function that it kind of evolved out of procurement departments. Um, into risk management, you know, as a separately identified entity, probably about, uh, I don't know, the 50s or 60s, I forget when that emerged. So you've still got the three-legged stool that underpins the fundamental, even traditional construct. You know, how do you prevent bad things from happening? How do you finance them? And how do you control them, you know, after they've happened? Control being a euphemism for the claim function primarily. Uh, Prevention being a euphemism primarily for the safety function in most settings, you know, and they may or may not control the safety function. They usually do control the claim function directly or indirectly. And then they fall back to their core, which is, you know, designing an insurance strategy. Although many people don't even do that. I mean, it's more kind of by seat of the pants. 
um, as opposed to a more specific, uh, detailed strategy. But, you know, that's, <laughs> if that's your job, if you're the primarily the insurance risk manager and you don't have an insurance strategy, you ought to be fired. You need to be blunt <laughs> about it. Uh, honest to God. I mean, yeah. you, you know, you can walk into any Fortune 500 risk director, VP job, and have somebody hand you the keys to the office. And your job basically is to maintain what's been built over the prior decades by somebody else, meaning, you know, a workers' comp program, a general liability program, an auto liability program, a DNO program, an air, air liability or craft liability program, and whatever other, you know, insurances they buy. But I mean, those, and property, of course, those are the five or six things that everybody buys or finances, you know, usually through a combination of insurance and uh, self-insurance or uh, retention or captive insurance, also known as alternative risk financing. Um, and when you cobble all of that together, you know, then you can basically say you got a full-time job that may require X number of resources to support those uh, underlying functions of prevention, finance, and control. Um, and then the question is, okay, you're an insurance risk manager. To what degree do you have any responsibility beyond that? Because if that's all you do, you probably don't need any technology to support what you do. Uh, anything that we've been calling risk tech as solutions to, um, you know, risk exposures and to mitigate risk in ways that insurance can't, either because it's not available or it's not sufficient. Right? So cyber is still a good example of this, right? Because if you look at most cyber losses, um, and, and I always go back to the target situation of 2013, it's kind of the first poster child for this. If you look at the numbers, the truth is they had about 100, 120 million of insurance that had some application to what happened. I can't tell you what they actually recovered and, and, a, and more than a billion dollars of losses and, and probably never, not necessarily fully mature either, because I think the issue of uh, market share loss and reputational damage is still unresolved. So, so that, that's kind of what, I hate to say this, but that's what most people who call themselves risk managers do. And that's the breadth and depth of their responsibility. Well, but, you know, I mean, they may say, well, you know, I've, I'm, I also control business continuity. Okay, good for you. That's normally a direct tie to the property uh, exposures. Uh, and or they may control the safety function. In smaller organizations, they may have a role in the benefit function. They may have a, a role or control, you know, crisis response function, usually tied into BC, business continuity. So, you know, until you get out of that box, there probably isn't any compelling argument for needing technology to do your job well, it, since that's our focal point, right? Technology right. and risk tech. And, yeah. From there, and, you know, to a person, like I was with Carol Fox in Vegas last week, but, you know, if you ask Carol, who's probably the most instrumental person at, on the RIM staff for kind of driving their agenda beyond this insurance realm, that is enterprise risk, strategic risk, whatever you want to label it. Uh, she, she told me years ago that the majority in the 60 percentile, back, I don't know, four years ago when I asked her this, of their members claim to be, you know, more enterprise risk managers. But understand that that takes on a different definition depending on who you talk to. And I would say in no two places is it exactly the same. And that's fine. 
you know, you don't want to pull it off the shelf and out of a box and jam it in. I've always said it really needs to be what the company needs. So what, what does it mean? It just means that, you know, fundamentally they're getting beyond insurable risks into a broader definition of uh, responsibility relative to risk and exposure. But probably except in, you know, the 10 or 20% of the cases, not truly risk A to Z, as I say, you know, all risks, insurable or not. And, and, and so that's another dividing line. So to a person and organization that they work for, the definition of their accountability is sitting probably on their job description. Maybe it's not on there, but what they're accountable for is on there supplemented by whatever uh, focus they agree to every 12 months when the boss says, what are your objectives for the next 12 months? I mean, and I'm kind of articulating to you my experience, having worked in, you know, six or seven major corporations. That was pretty routine, pretty consistent. You know, that would define what you got done. It would define what you prioritize and focus on. So if your job was just insurable risk and you come to the boss at the new year and you say, boss, I want to get involved in, uh, you know, strategic risk. I haven't been, but I think somebody needs to cover that base. Nobody seems to be doing it. You know, what CFO, general counsel or whatever is going to say no. You know, they may say, well, okay, I'm not sure that that's true, that nobody's covering it. But if you want to, you know, do more, hey, awesome. You're not getting any more people. That's great. No more resources. But, but, but they probably also would start with, so what does that mean? <laughs> right? What, what, would, a strategic, sure. what a strategic risk means. So I think the way you laid it out here is kind of interesting. So you kind of sort of have the historic box that, it, in, that, in, that encompasses prevention, finance, and claims, control. Mm-hmm. And, and it's all around insurable risks. And so I have used this term cost of risk before. And so it, inside the box, would you say that cost of risk is essentially the, the sum of all of your insurance premiums? Or is there more uh, to well, cost no, of risk? Well, cost of risk, which is the, is the more correct term, TCOR, okay. is the metric used by those traditional uh, folks to capture uh, one way in which they measure their performance, which is to say, yeah, all insurance premiums, all retained losses or self-insured losses, all, you know, indirect costs. And, and then like, uh, for example, if you had an investment in technology uh, or you paid other third parties to do all kinds of miscellaneous things to support different programs, and then the direct costs of your department as well, consultants, brokers, and then, you know, all that miscellaneous stuff that kind of supports what you do day to day. That's total cost of risk. TCOR goes beyond the financing of risk to capture all costs related to insurable risk. So when you look at when you look at um, technology, so those three those three legs of the stool that are kind of inside this box, you know, you look at prevention, prediction, and prevention. There's a bunch of technologies that arguably would be applicable to that leg of the stool. Agree. Do you do you see that there's a a population of risk managers that are looking at that tech to, to to kind of drive down the cost of, you know, this prevention yeah. and prediction thing. Well, yeah. In fact, uh, you know, in the last year or two, I've been on calls with some that 
and for different reasons that, you know, that stick out in my mind. And one is one I go, I know you guys are particularly familiar with, and that's the telematics thing. I think that's the category, right? So if you're in the, if you're, if you're old dominion or whoever you are, and you've got, you know, a huge commercial trucking fleet exposure or your federal express or whoever you are, you know, you're, you're probably going to be involved in using some forms of telematics to, uh, control and influence driver behavior and lower the cost of risk in that realm as a result. Similarly with claims and control, uh, they're, they're beginning to implement or use technologies that streamline that process? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, and we're, we're there as well in Sedgwick. I mean, the traditional uh, technology underpinning uh, the claim function, of course, is the claim management system. And many of those things are old line legacy systems that have been kind of, you know, tacked onto over the, over the years and if not decades, you know, in the last five or more companies like ours have invested in handheld technologies, you know, that are given to, in some cases, claim people in other cases, you know, they're done and created for the purposes of giving claimants, you know, such as in the work comp world, a certain information available to them in the medium that, you know, they most use these days. So we're having to program and develop app-related technology uh, to support that new way of communicating and have been for at least five or more years. So um, we have systems that kind of fall into that separate grouping of things done for for uh, whatever the right bucket is for that. I call them handhelds. You know, I guess they're, you know, that includes iPad-type technology or, and uh, computers themselves. But basically, the, the general goal is to put more information in the, the hands of different stakeholders, particularly primary stakeholders that are involved in the transaction itself. In this case, I'm using work comp or injured worker transactions as the example. So, yeah, when you look at the number of vendors involved in the workers' comp community overall, they're all doing some form of technology, you know, to, to, to innovate and, and do what they do better and do it hopefully, you know, on a, to a competitive advantage. But I couldn't begin to describe a lot of what, what's there. It's unique to each one of those providers and what they do and how they contribute to that particular area of exposure. So let me ask you a question. So if the average everyday risk manager, who do they look to to kind of give them best of class or kind of what's happening today type technologies in each one of these three legs of the stool? How do they know what to do? Mm-hmm. To, to give to give it to them or to advise them about what exists? Uh, well, either, but I'm, I was specifically thinking about who do they look to to, to to advise them as to kind of what the options are and what they could do. Uh, you know, the automatic answer that always comes to my mind is brokers and secondarily consultants. Um, you know, because so many of these Fortune 1000s are paying flat fees to, you know, whatever broker or brokers they use whose first order of business is to help them buy insurance, but whose close second is to advise them about things that can help them be more successful. So that would include technological capabilities. And as, as you kind of go from the fortune 100, 500,000 down to mid market, is that, is that routine? You know, once you get past the, the big four or five biggest brokers, uh, do you think that that's true all the way down in the middle market that that folks rely on the 
on the broker to do that and that the broker is in fact paid a flat fee as opposed to just the broker doing whatever they do and collecting their commission? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, I don't know where the threshold actually sits, but my, my perception, because for example, in my last risk job at USAA, I used Marsh, which is of course always been number one, uh, world's largest for certain things. But I also used a what, what most people consider a, a tier two uh, broker, uh, now known as USI, who whose capabilities were much more severely limited to what they do in terms of buying insurance. So much so that a good friend of mine, who's one of their Dallas SVPs, um, and I have had you know interactions over the years, and I was always shocked that. USI being whatever they are, and at the time they were probably number eight, they may be number six now, I don't know, but that they had really no connection to the world that Cedric lives in, the TPA world. You know, they had no little or if any business with with big TPAs or even medium-sized TPAs. Why? Because their book tends to be uh, groups of or or, um, clients that are are smaller than larger, let's put it that way. And when they're smaller than larger, you may not even have a risk manager um, to interact with. You may be dealing with a CFO who has the insurance responsibility and by default, whatever risk management means in an organization like that. And, and, and the answer is probably not a lot, you know, because the way those organizations are managed, you know, everybody's got multiple hats. And I'm sure most CEOs in that world would say, no, risk is everybody's responsibility. And some would say, and the buck stops here, I'm the risk manager for this organization. But until they get to a certain size, wouldn't invest in a risk department or or a risk manager, let alone a risk department, um, where it just suddenly becomes obvious that you can't continue to do business the you know, the way you, you, you did as an entrepreneurial outfit growing into midsize and then, you know, getting beyond that, where, for example, particularly when you become multinational, you, you realize how challenging the risk management slash insurance responsibility can really be trying to be compliant with, you know, insurance laws around the world. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting because so, so what those guys tend to default to is even if they have a risk manager and they may be just that one full-time person, maybe not even a full-time person, but a person who's half risk manager, half compliance guy or whatever. And so what does he have time to do? Nothing but make sure that they buy the right insurance and anything else that gets done in the world of risk management and that traditional, you know, three-legged stool concept gets done by, or is enabled by a third party, like a broker or consultant. Right, which, which kind of gets to where I was headed with that original question, that it occurs to me that the role of a broker in that middle management, that middle market is, is now becoming and will eventually become way more of an, outs- an outsourced risk manager than just a broker. They can't, they, well, they're yeah. not going to yeah. be, rely, they can't rely on just saying, okay, here's your menu of insurance coverage that you need. Here, write me a check for this premium. I'll call you next year. Right, the, the, which is the, a typical, that's a typical insurance agent's role that you right. just defined. Right. They're going to have to, they're, the, the revenue model in that is going to have to eventually morph into more of a consultative thing and less reliant upon the 
the commission structure um, right. because they're going to have to be more involved on a, in, a, in a consultative way as, as a quote-unquote outsourced professional risk manager for those companies that don't have that function. Right. But here, here's the deal, getting back to one of your questions about what the role these guys play, the brokers and particularly, but also the consultants. As I've watched, you know, the big four or five, you know, kind of go back and forth over 10, 20 years, just on the issue of whether or not they provide any services related to enterprise risk management, which was, you know, that was essentially, that was my job at USAA. Yes, I had corporate insurance responsibility. It was a separate center of excellence. But my job was building an ERM strategy and then executing it. So did I get any assistance from Marsh? No. Even if you go to most risk management consultancies, the independents outside of the brokerage world, the vast majority of their revenue comes from uh, the the, uh, insurance-related risks and the needs in that world. Um, And everything from, you know, claim operational reviews to claim audits to uh, insurance uh, strategy development, uh, you know, to some degree, perhaps risk management information system advice, uh, doing RFPs to find the right system, that kind of thing. But those guys, if if they had 10% of their capability as of being able to deliver something beyond the insurance-related realm, it was unusual. And uh, you saw that in the RMIS providers too. That ended up being, in my view, an accommodation where you wanted the client, you wanted whoever it was, name the company, you wanted to sell them an RMIS. Most of the money behind that sale was related to their insurance issues, but you wanted to be able to offer them other, um, typically what they call modules, I guess, that could do this and that. Maybe it's compliance, maybe it's safety, maybe it's uh, business continuity, uh, maybe it's ERM, or maybe it's audit even. And so the, the bigger RMM, RMIS providers got involved in providing technology to support all those uh, other functions. I won't call them ancillary. They're just other functions that the risk people may or may not control, but they're part of their stakeholder community. So they may be involved in helping them, maybe collaboratively or in a partnership form, go into the market looking for a technology solution that meets all of their needs. It's hard to do, but I mean, some of those guys pitch it that way. Um, and frankly, it makes the, the sales cycle so much longer because now you've got a chief auditor, a chief compliance guy, a chief risk guy, and they're all trying to get along and figure out how they buy one system that you know, can support all their needs. It would just seem like the consultative approach to risk management and the opportunities that technology will enable whether you're talking about the three legs of the stool inside the box, whether or not you're talking about ERM or, you know, SRM or whatever RM outside the box, it would just seem like there's incredible opportunity that either, either nobody does, either nobody sees the value in from a monetary perspective or they just don't know how to do it. Yeah. Well, I think the, the second is probably more likely. They're just not quite sure how to do it primarily because the way it's practiced is different from company to company. And so, you know, you're really with the first order of business is just trying to figure out, well, who's in charge here, you know, relative to, you know, risk-related issues. And we talked about this briefly before, and that is it occurs to me that technology um, is moving in a way that 
a lot of risk could be managed in connection with product development so that risk and risk management could be, in the future at least, be perceived as part of the revenue generating function, a part of a value creation function as opposed to just the bottom half of the financial statement as it, you know, viewed as an expense and a liability that you know, risk and your ability to manage risk super efficiently makes the products and services that you as a company provide to your customers. And you know, so you could charge more or you know, have less expense or whatever. Well, I mean, you've hit on one of the other couple of things that distinguish ERM uh, from traditional risk management, which is to say when people can finally get their heads out of the sand and realize that to truly manage risk uh, for long-term success means managing uh, risk for value creation, what we call the upside of risk. And, and again, most traditional risk managers don't have a thing to do with that and don't want to have a thing to do with it, either because they don't see an opening to be involved or they don't want the additional responsibilities or they see it as actually elevating their own personal risk to stick their head out of the out of the bunker and say, hey, I can contribute to that discussion, you know, whether it's a new business unit, a new product line, or whatever it is, you know, right? Um, an M and A strategy. I mean, see, that's why so many senior executives look at risk people and go, oh yeah, that insurance guy. Why would we have him at the table for an M and A discussion? Right. Uh, until we have to, right? Because it's secret. We don't want anybody to know about it. Right. Um, we'll we'll, get, we'll bring him in when we need to. That that's the attitude. Right. Uh, with exceptions, of course, but I mean, that's still prevailing. And part of it is because a lot of my colleagues or former colleagues haven't stepped up to really show what they can do, or maybe they're not capable in many cases. Uh, um, but if you're not perceived as somebody who can contribute to a strategic dialogue or initiative, then why would anybody ever come calling for that purpose? Yeah, well, you know, that goes exactly to the purpose of why we wanted to do this our goal is to help build confidence among the community of risk managers and the, I guess the broader community of those people who have risk making decision authority in their companies of, of, of all sizes. And then on the other hand, kind of inform the, the corporate you know, world out there as to the different ways and more valuable ways risk managers and the risk management function can be seen all with the notion of, hey, this is just not an expense. It's not just a liability. It's an opportunity to either diminish or create value. And last time I checked, companies are measured based on their value. So it becomes an important thing. Chris, listen, man, thank you so much uh, for your, your time this afternoon.